President Obama and Chancellor Angela Merkel said the sanctions were necessary to bring a lasting resolution to the crisis. You're listening to the news on RTHK. trend for the last three to five years. The Department of Financial Services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. The FOMC leaves U.S. rates unchanged but removes the word patience from its statement. U.S. and China stocks surge on accommodative central banks. Chinese property prices fall an annual 5.8% in February, the largest drop on record. And Cathay Pacific profits miss expectations on larger-than-expected oil hedging costs. The world is normal. The central banks, bankers are mad. (laughs) They are deranged. (laughs) They're deranged. (laughs) They belong into an asylum, not in central banks. That's your morning teaser from none other than Mark Faber, a.k.a. Dr. Doom, just in case you're thinking that the global economy is safe in the hands of the world's central banks. The Fed, the U.S. Fed, is now neither patient nor impatient. So what happens next? We'll ask our market commentator, Rabobank's Michael Every. Cathay Pacific released their full-year earnings report yesterday. We'll uh, take a closer look at the numbers a little later in the show. And Peter Lewis, our guest host for Thursdays, is back in the studio. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Anita. So, Peter, Mark Farber says that central banks are deranged. (laughs) (laughs) The Fed has taken a dovish stance, would you say. Um, What are your thoughts? Well, I don't know about deranged, but I think the Fed is in total disarray. I mean, we're we're now six years into um, an economic expansion in the US, and the Fed still has no idea how is it going to raise interest rates, what data is it looking at to make that decision, and nor when it's going to raise rates. And its economic forecasts are all over the place. So it's it's removed the word patient, and thank goodness for that, for, for doing that. But it's really wasted the last few meetings talking about the language it wants to use about when it might raise rates, but without actually doing it. Why do you say thank goodness for that, Peter? Well, there was too much um, focus on words in statements like considerable time, like patience. And if the Fed is supposed to be data dependent and is supposed to be looking each time at the economic data, why does it need to lock itself into a time frame? It's either data dependent or it isn't. Okay, so the U.S. Fed leaves U.S. interest rates unchanged at zero to one quarter of one percent, dropping the pledge, of course, to be patient, as we as we just said, and so leaving itself free to raise rates as early as June. It also reduced its forecast for both inflation and growth, suggesting that the Fed may wait even longer than June before raising rates. Janet Yellen struck a dovish tone in her press conference after the meeting. As you know... The Federal Open Market Committee this afternoon reaffirmed the current zero to one quarter percent target range for the federal funds rate. We also updated our forward guidance indicating that an increase in the target range for the federal funds rate remains unlikely at our next meeting in April. With continued improvement in economic conditions, however, We do not want to rule out the possibility 
that an increase in the target range could be warranted at subsequent meetings. Let me emphasize, however, that the timing of the initial increase in the target range will depend on the committee's assessment of incoming information. The modification, however, doesn't mean that the Fed has decided on the timing of the increase. Just because we remove the word patient from the statement doesn't mean we're going to be impatient. Moreover, even after the initial increase in the target funds rate, our policy is likely to remain highly accommodative to support continued progress toward our objectives of maximum employment and 2% inflation. Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi UFJ Chief Economist Chris Rupke struggles to understand the decision. The Fed met today. They dropped the word patient, but they still sound pretty patient to us. What's the hurry? Don't be fooled by them saying they won't go in April. The interest rate forecast for the Fed funds rate at the end of 2015 got whacked. June doesn't look possible now based on them moving down their forecasts. It's September now, a heck of a long time to wait. And they backed their delay up with economic forecasts, saying the economy was further away from full employment. They revised down full employment, unemployment to 5.0 to 5.2%, where in December their forecasts said 5.2 to 5.5. There is more work to do, they think. There is still a role for monetary policy to play. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The economy created 1.1 million more payroll jobs since they met in December. And they got more dovish. We don't get it. Stocks erased earlier losses and bond yields fell in reaction to the Fed decision. The U.S. dollar index had its biggest plunge since March 2009, with the euro touching $1.10. Oil prices rose over 4% in response to the weak dollar. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was down before the Fed statement, reversed course to close up 227 points to 18,076. The S&P rose 1.2%, closing up 25 points to 2,099. And the Nasdaq briefly regained the 5,000 level before settling back to close up 45 points to 4,982. Janet Yellen gives us her view of equity market valuations. Overall measures of equity valuations are in the high side, but not out outside of historical ranges. Um, in some corporate debt markets, we do see um, evidence of uh, unusually low spreads, and that's what was referred to in the report. More broadly, um, we do try to assess potential threats to financial stability. And in addition to looking at asset valuations, we also look at measures of credit growth, um, of the extent of leverage being used uh, in the economy and in the financial sector, and the extent of maturity transformation, and taking into account a broad range of uh, metrics that bear on financial stability. Our overall assessment at this point is the threats are moderate. 
So now that the Fed has become less patient, when will they raise interest rates? Dr. Doom, Mark Farber, publisher of the Gloom, Boom and Doom Report, thinks not this year. I don't believe the Fed will increase interest rates this year because the economy is weakening. Now, there are two events uh, which may lead to the Fed increasing rates. Either the economy picks up dramatically, which I do not expect. I think the economy is actually much weaker than the employment figures would suggest. And number two, because of the strong dollar, the Fed will be very reluctant to increase interest rates at the time you have essentially massive easing in Japan, in Europe and elsewhere. They don't want a stronger dollar because a very strong dollar is rather negative for the U.S. economy. When I think of central (laughs) banks, I don't think there's much to laugh about. It's actually tragic that the whole world now is paying attention to a group of professors and academics that hardly worked ever in their lives. And one word will trigger a market move, the word patience. Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) All right, closer to home in China, property prices fell by an annual 5.8% last month. This was the largest fall on record. Property prices fell in 69 out of 70 cities surveyed. In Beijing, prices fell 3.6% year-on-year, and in Shanghai, they slipped uh, 4.7%. The Chinese government set a new growth target of 7% just two weeks ago. However, with the real estate sector accounting for over a quarter of Chinese GDP, this latest fall makes the target harder to achieve. Donald Hahn is the managing director at Chesterton's and he expects housing prices in China to fall further. The biggest issue right now is a huge stockpile that is in the market right now in China. That stockpile is at least two to three years of uh, supply in terms of demand that China can actually absorb. And with that kind of stockpile, you can rest assured that prices will continue to dip. Mm-hmm. Of course, there will be certain pockets like in core Beijing, core, central, Shanghai, where demand will continue to outperform the rest of the other markets. Yeah. But that being said, we expect supply-wise to be the main factor of, uh, that will drive prices downwards in the next one, two years. All right, uh, Peter, before we bring in Michael Every, who is our first guest of the morning, uh, I know you've got some views on the Fed. When do you think they'll actually raise rates? Well, I think they've missed the boat. They should have raised rates last year when they had a chance and, and when the economy was going reasonably well. But they've now boxed themselves into a corner because they're, they're now forced into the position where they've got to consider raising rates just as the business cycle and the economic cycle is starting to turn down. And, and And if you look at the recent economic data that we're getting out of the US, nearly all of it, with the exceptions of the jobs report, has missed expectations. We've had retail sales below expectations, housing starts, manufacturing data – all turning downwards. The uh, the U.S. Macro Surprise Index is now at its uh, has now had its worst start to uh, a year on record. And the Atlanta Fed, uh, which monitors GDP on a real time sort of basis, they have this model called GDP Now, um, and it plugs in all the latest data. Is now forecasting Q1 GDP growth of just 0.3 percent. So in those circumstances, it's going to be extremely difficult now for the Fed to go and raise rates. I think they may try and do. 
one token rate because they really wanted to get rates up so they have some ammunition for when the economy turns down, but they're too late. All right, let's bring in uh, Michael Every, who is the head of Asia-Pacific Financial Markets Research at Rabobank. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, the Fed has also lowered its growth and inflation forecast. Is it now starting to come round to the market view for inflation and growth? Well, I think it is. Uh, I have to be honest. Usually when I appear on one of these kind of shows, I'm the usual uh, solitary bear or voice of gloom and doom. And it appears I'm actually with the crowd today because everything that's just been said, I fully concur with. All right. Well done on that one. (laughs) Okay. So uh, do you think that the U.S. economy is in good enough shape to cope with a rate race? Rise? Um, Potentially it might be able to shrug off... uh, one this year, you know, in Q4, and maybe even with a good headwind behind it, um, you know, one or two more next year if they're very, very carefully uh, implemented, and there's clear signposts that there aren't much more to come. But I don't think that the U.S. economy is in any way, shape, or form ready to deal with a Fed funds rate of over 3%. Now, what about the fact that the U.S. dollar index fell 2.5% last night? Is that just a blip in the overall uptrend, or do you think that the dollar strength is now reversing? Well, it really depends on where the Fed go from here, to be honest. Um, I mean, we are in for a massive uh, period of volatility or a period of massive volatility, I should say, uh, in, in FX markets going forward, purely because we have either such divergent monetary policy between the US, Japan and Europe, or we have all of them in a race to the bottom. Either way, it's going to get quite messy out there. So the, the long dollar trade, Michael, is a very overcrowded trade these days. Um, so if the US dollar starts trending lower for more than a couple of sessions, isn't that going to cause some problems? And we may even potentially see some fairly rapid unwinding of these long dollar positions. Oh, certainly. I mean, the technical stance is such that that could definitely happen. Um, but if we contrast that with the fundamentals picture, the market will be in a push-me-pull-you. They won't know whether to run with that or whether to think that the Fed may actually suddenly turn around and uh, get more aggressive again if we get one or two good data points out of the U.S. So it's going to be very, very choppy out there. Plus, of course, we have to remember that even if the U.S. do say, OK, right, we're not going to be raising rates, we don't think we can actually deal with a, a higher Fed funds rate right now, where does that leave Japan? Where does that leave Europe, both of which desperately need a weaker currency? And, and you mentioned Europe. I mean, the, you know, the, the euro's touched 110 again um, in overnight trading. The, the, this makes Mario Draghi's life rather more complicated now, doesn't it? It does indeed. I think he needs this like a hole in the head. But um, unfortunately, this is the reality we're in of weak global demand overall and everyone doing their best to try and grab uh, a share or a larger share of a, a stagnant pie. And, and if, if we look at, um, you know, the, the strong dollar in terms of um, U.S., um, the, the U.S. economy, on the one hand, it's a, it's a tax cut for consumers. But on the other hand, and we're seeing already, it's, it's quite bad for sort of corporate profits. So, so which one wins out in the end in terms of the overall impact on the U.S. economy? Or, or is this a wash overall? Well, I think it depends on the, on the time frame that you're looking at. Near term, actually, we haven't really seen very much benefit at all to consumers. Uh, if anything, they've been pocketing any of those kind of de facto tax cuts. And confidence still seems to be, seems to be significantly low amongst uh, you know, the vast majority of U.S. consumers that they're not going out and spending as a result. Whereas, of course, corporate profits are coming down, and that immediately hits the wealth effect amongst those better-off Americans who have been benefiting from this whole paradigm. All right, Michael, let's talk about China now. The property market decline appears to be accelerating. How is this going to affect the likelihood of hitting the 7% growth target? Well, obviously, it's headwinds 
towards that goal. Uh, we actually don't think they will hit 7% this year. They think, we think they'll undershoot slightly. Um, but basically, China is in a structural rather than a cyclical slowdown. Uh, and the fall in property prices really reflects that. There's a long, long way to go before that process plays itself out. And during that entire period, China is going to find it very, very difficult to grow at the rates it used to in the past. So how much do you expect monetary easing is going to help? I mean, they've done this twice already, expecting to, to do this a couple more times, perhaps. Uh, but is it going to make any difference? Not really, but that won't stop them doing it. That um, <laughs> effectively, we're in a structural problem rather than a cyclical one, as I said. But for most central banks, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So whenever you have a problem, what you do is you just bang it with the hammer, which is effectively just uh, easing policy. So they will keep doing that. They'll actually be very happy about what's going on in the U.S. <laughs> so the, the less the Fed do, the easier their life gets. That's one positive for them. But it appears that uh, U.S. monetary policy overall is becoming more in sync with that of central banks than around the world, including China, in that it will remain accommodating for longer, sort of as you suggest. Now, with 24 central banks cutting rates so far to try and stimulate their economy by, in effect, devaluing their currencies against the dollar, who wins now that the U.S. is concerned about the strong dollar? Uh, well, actually, it's 25. I think Sweden went uh, yesterday, too. Oh. Um, we we all lose. That's the answer, rather than who wins. Um, I've done a lot of research looking at the history of these currency wars, and obviously the most recent example uh, in history is the 1930s, and that ended with World War Two. Now, I'm not making a forecast that we're going to get World War Three on the back of this, but effectively, when you're in a global paradigm where no one's growing strongly enough and everyone's trying to race to the bottom, it's impossible for everybody to win, and in fact, everybody loses. Michael, will the latest action by the Fed take the pressure off the RMB US dollar peg and ease pressure on the PBOC to ease monetary policy? Well, temporarily it will, yes, because, you know, uh, obviously that gives China a little bit more breathing room. But it's only a short-term boost because effectively what that will mean, if it continues, is that the US isn't growing strongly either. And you can add that to the list of Japan and Europe and China itself. And then we still get back to the problem of how China's going to generate some growth when everyone else isn't growing. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michael Every, and he is the head of financial markets research Asia Pacific at Rabobank. All right, a quick look at the numbers uh, for this morning. The Nikkei is down 37 points to 19,507. Australia's ASX index is up 74 points to 5,882. And Sol's Kospi up 17 points to 2,045. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.08. Eight U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is trading at 120 yen, and one pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong dollars and 60 cents. I'm Dr. Regina Cheng from the Center for Health Protection. Stepping up hygiene measures will not only help prevent flu, but will also build up resistance to avian flu. Here are some effective measures: wash your hands frequently, keep the environment clean, and ensure good ventilation. Cover mouth and nose with tissue paper when coughing or sneezing and dispose of soiled tissue paper properly in a lidded rubbish bin. People with flu symptoms, carers of patients and visitors at hospitals or clinics should wear a mask. Avoid crowded places.
The time is now 8.22 a.m. and Cathay Pacific reported a net profit of 3.15 billion Hong Kong dollars, missing estimates of 3.49 billion Hong Kong dollars. Passenger traffic increased by 5.5% and the drop in the oil price helped profits overall, but also led to a hedging loss of 900, uh, excuse, 911 million Hong Kong dollars. And also an unrealized loss of 12.5 billion. Cathay Pacific shares closed down 0.6% in Hong Kong, uh, at $16.94 per share. The airline says that the benefit of lower fuel prices was partially offset, uh, as we said, by fuel, uh, hedging losses. Cathay's finance director, Martin Murray, was asked about the outlook on fuel hedging this year. We continue to hedge when we see opportunities. So when the fuel went down in January, very low, we have uh, taken out more hedges there. So that $14.3 billion a year end by the end of February had actually come down substantially, uh, even though the forward curve of, of fuel hadn't changed in price. And the reason being we've realized some of those hedging losses in January and February that were there, and also the, 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 the hedges that we took out in January are, are now gains. So, so that 14.3 number will, will move around, but it's coming down and down. All right, now we're joined on the phone by Vandana Hari, who is the Asia Editorial Director for Platts. Uh, good morning, Vandana. Thank you for joining us today from Singapore. Um, Vandana, what do you make of the fact that, uh, you know, Cathay's uh, lower, uh, Cathay Pacific says that the benefit of lower fuel prices was partially offset by fuel hedging losses? Yes, Cathay is not alone. I think a lot of other airlines find themselves in a, in a similar situation, uh, certainly in this region. Uh, hedging, uh, hedging their fuel costs uh, is a tricky business for airlines. Essentially, hedging involves uh, buying protection against uh, higher oil prices, but it comes with an opportunity cost. So if you are hedged, let's say, at $100 uh, jet fuel, irrespective of whether jet fuel actually goes uh, to 115 or goes down to 60 what it means that is that the net of your physical buying of jet fuel and your derivatives positions, you end up paying $100. So that's the opportunity cost when prices go down. The entire benefit of, let's say, jet fuel having crashed to $60 is not passed on to the airlines. Uh, having said that, you know, it, uh, do they need to hedge? <laughs> yes, they do. Uh, so they, uh, I think it's, it's a question of uh, basically they're taking a bet on the market. So that's the risky part. Uh, they hedge several years out, several quarters out. Uh, so, you know, um, whenever there's volatile movements, unforeseen crashes uh, in the market, they will have that opportunity cost. So this is obviously a di- difficult decision for airlines to make. And with oil prices the way they are now, and many are beginning to say, well, there might be a new bottom. Should they continue to hedge? So uh, one could argue or take the position that uh, with prices uh, at current levels, let's say 50, yes, there, is, uh, there, there are some uh, calling for uh, a further dip. But on a longer term, you could argue that prices are not going to go that much lower. So really the trick for the airlines is to get into the market at the right point. Um, you know, at what level they, they decide to hedge for. They'll not be hedging for, for, for the next month or so. They, again, need to take a long-term view, let's say for the second half of this year or maybe even, even farther out. 
We saw this in, in 2008 and 9 as well, when prices crashed from you know, highs of 150 to like $30 a barrel. A lot of the airlines at that time actually uh, quite drastically changed their hedging strategy. So what proportion of jet fuel they were hedging, you know, they don't need to hedge and they usually don't hedge 100% of the jet fuel requirements. Uh, how far out they are hedging, how many years out and what kind of hedging instruments they're using. So that's another uh, critical part as well. So we saw a lot of them move from, you know, using very exotic instruments, which tend to be a bit harder to understand to more simpler uh, instruments. So, so you mentioned they have... this wave will, will uh, bring about another look at the hedging strategies as well. So you mentioned they have to take a long-term view here. I mean, I think Cathay, it's, it's hedged its doral out to, to 2018, hasn't it? That seems yes. to be quite a long-term view that's going to potentially affect its profits going forward for a while, particularly if the oil price stays down at, uh, you know, between $40, $50 a barrel. Absolutely. I think what probably made this... Uh, a bit difficult is that between 2011 and mid 2014, we saw prices relatively stable, uh, you know, between a band of let's say 100 to 120 dollars. It's not just the airlines that has got a lot of industry players on on the back foot. You know, even major oil majors that you see now putting a lot of major oil projects uh, on the back burner. All of these projects, they had assumed that prices were going to remain stable for the foreseeable future. So you can't really blame the airlines for, for hedging that far out. But as I mentioned earlier, if they, uh, if they conclude now that we are in for a period of volatility for some time before prices stabilize again, uh, they'll probably tweak their hedging strategy, strategies yet again and maybe not hedge that far out. Vandana, thank you so much for taking some time out to join us this morning on a very interesting topic. That is Vandana Hari, and she is the editorial director of Platts Asia. Well, a quick look at the numbers before we close up the show. The Nikkei is now down 16 points to 19,528. Australia's ASX index up 86 points to 5,894. And Seoul's cost be up 15 points to 2043. Gold is currently valued at $1,171 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $56.02. Well, Peter, now that the Fed meeting is out of the way, what are the markets going to focus on next? Well, I think they're going to scrutinize now every single piece of economic data that comes out to see what impacts this might have on, uh, on the next Fed decision. And I think it'll be similar to what we've seen before in that bad news will be good news. If it's bad economic data, then there will be the feeling that uh, rate, rate hikes are, are put off into the distance. Um, and if it's good economic news, then the markets are going to fall. Maybe Mark Farber has a point there because we seem to be living from one Fed meeting to the next. Yep, the, the central one, banks control the markets yep, these days. One central bank meeting to the next. All right, Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning and every Thursday morning. This is Peter Lewis. Uh, that is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, our Thursday co-host. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today, it'll be humid with fog patches in the morning and at night, mainly fine and warm during the day. The temperature right now is 22 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 96%. Time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. 
gunman have killed at least 17 foreign tourists and one local person in an attack on one of Tunisia's most prestigious museums. The assailants shot dead visitors from Japan, Colombia, Italy, Spain and other European countries as they were getting off a bus outside the Bardo Museum in Tunis, which stands next to the Parliament building. The gunman then took hostages inside the museum before being shot dead by security forces. President Beji Kaid Asebsi blamed Islamist militants. The BBC's Navina Tour reports from Tunis. The last group of tourists were taken away on a bus a while ago, waving at bystanders and security forces. But many Tunisians here are reluctant to leave. I am sad and shocked, one of them told me. The attackers managed to strike both at the political as well as the economic heart of the country. The site of the attack, the Bardo Museum, is to Tunis what the Louvre is to Paris. It's in walking distance to Parliament, where terrified politicians were in lockdown when the attack began. This is the first attack on civilians in more than a decade. And as an act of defiance and solidarity with the victims, politicians have been gathering here this evening. Protest organisers have condemned the level of violence at a demonstration marking the opening of the new European Central Bank headquarters in the German city of Frankfurt. Police cars were set alight and around 80 policemen were injured. The BBC's Damien Grammaticus reports. 17,000 of them descended on Frankfurt, anti-capitalists and anti-austerity. They say the ECB, along with the EU and the IMF, are foisting economic policies on Europe that favour banks and big businesses, not ordinary people. In total, around 350 were detained by police. But as the opening of the ECB's headquarters went ahead, its president, Mario Draghi, said the bank should not be blamed for austerity. In his view, it had helped Europe ensure stability in a time of crisis. The Cancer Council of Victoria says